Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Welcome to this week's Word on the Streets. I'm back with Will today and we thought we'd centre our discussion around Asia, particularly looking at China and Japan, given news flow and general interest over there. But before that, well, we've had some fresh inflation data out of Europe and just literally as we're recording out of the US. Any particular takeaways for you and my team? Has it changed the lay of the land for investors ahead? Aren't you going to ask me about my trip to Norwich this morning? Well, no, because you also just questioned my aggressive haircut. So I thought we'd well, just let, we'd let I that the one chance, go. I wanted the chance to tell you about Carrow Road, the home of football, as we know. Let's be having you. Um, so, yes, inflation data. We have just had the inflation data out of the US. And again, I think the reminder that I would give on this, that we would give on this, is that the decimal places with inflation data are irrelevant. Mm-hmm. They are disingenuous. We're just not good enough at measuring it to sort of really warrant that kind of detail. It came in roughly in line with expectations and markets have taken that as a good thing. We're still on for, we suspect, rate cuts in the US at some point this year, probably in the UK too and Europe. And I think the sort of the point to, you know, obviously we remain humble about the outlook for inflation. That's an important point. But, you know, so far, so good. I think that's the thing. And January data in general. So we had that CPI report, which everyone got a bit freaked out about. But there are so many factors in there, noisy factors. We pointed, you and I talked about it, that you probably want to sort of be very wary of paying too much attention to that inflation data just in isolation. Always look at the trend anyway. And so far, the trend remains okay. So, you know, we remain cautious but optimistic. I like it. Yes. Glass half full. Yes, as always. Again, as always. But speaking to clients, not uniform, of course, some yep. clients, there's a bit of a sense amongst some that maybe there's a bit of a cartoon analogy here, which is maybe a bit before my time. We're at that point where we're still, you know, moving ahead gradually. We're over that cliff edge, but maybe we're about to drop. Wiley Coyote. That's the one. Not before my time, you'll notice. <laughs> Hence, you've still got choices with haircuts, and I don't have any choices, Absolutely. as we discussed. Uh, yes, I mean, I, there is this fear, and I, and I think that part of that owes much to the recent past in some ways. We've just had a quite a sort of crisis-filled period. We're naturally disposed, I think, as humans and investors to sort of think about the next recession rather than sort of, you know, the sunlit uplands of an economic boom. Mm-hmm. And the recent past would kind of guide us towards that a little bit. Uh, I would just remind people that, you know, growth is the norm, not the exception for the economy. The natural state is growth. The reasons behind the growth last year, they may be a bit less fragile than some people suspect. So as always, we would say, look, there are a broad range of sort of potential paths ahead. Always be trying to think about all of those paths. I would say that, you know, or we would, you know, the team definitely argue that there are risks. Um, there always will be. There always will be. And I think that's a good point. You know, of, you know, one of the ones that people are talking about a lot still is the commercial property space in the US and, you know, how those potential bad loans might roll up into regional banks and so on, you know. But remember, I mean, the question really, I think, is whether the risks of a recession are greater than normal. I'm not quite sure that they are at the moment. And remember, at the other end of the kind of probability distribution, you've got this sort of growing potential, I think, for a sort of melt up, um, this growing excitement around, you know, various new technologies incoming, you know, the changing technological frontier that has the potential to sort of kickstart productivity again, as people talked about in the sort of mid 1990s. And remember, with that analogy, 
And we always were wary of, you know, precise historical analogies. Mm. But the mid-90s to sort of the mid-2000s is an interesting parable in a way, because then if you're looking at the central bankers of the time, you know, Alan Greenspan's Federal Reserve, he famously kind of allowed, you know, a very low unemployment rate and, you know, strong growth to go unpunished by higher interest rates because he felt, and it really was no more than that, that productivity was rising. And he did this by looking at anecdotal data, all sorts of other uh, sort of little inputs. The reality is that that productivity surge that happened, you know, we can now date back to 1995, didn't really become obvious in the trend until the third quarter of 1998. So remember, you know, to keep humble a little bit about what's going on under the bonnet in the US economy in particular. And this is the engine room for the global economy. The US consumer and private sector remains in intimidatingly good financial health. Yes, there are cracks. Yes, there are some rising delinquencies in some kind of spots. But don't get too carried away with that, I think. There's still stuff to be excited about. I think very much so. And I, and I wouldn't get too carried away with sort of, you know, waiting for the next recession. That's a generally a very unprofitable exercise, as we know, as investors, you want to be looking to the medium term anyway. But yes, tomorrow, there will be the biggest recession of all time. And I'll have to sort of, you know, (laughs) re-record, re-record the podcast. But no, I can't see personally, and the team are sort of feeling, you know, quite balanced about it at the moment, I guess. Got it. Interesting. Right, let's move on to the main topic of today, Asia. So much kind of press coverage out there and a lot of investor interest. So we've got China on the one side battling its own giant property bubble. Let's not beat around the bush. And on the other side of the spectrum, we've got Japan, which is coming out of a multi-decade period of you know its own burst property bubble. Yes. Where are we with everything? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, so, you know, comparisons of property bubbles are quite difficult. But there's a famous statistic with regards to Japan's property bubble where I think it once, is it 1986? And again, you know, sharp-eyed listeners will be able to correct me on this. But in 1986, I think you found there was a comparison that the Imperial Palace in Tokyo was worth more than the entire state of California. So wow. just to give you a yeah yeah just to give you a sense we need to get you one of those game shows your I history know, knowledge is just I know. It, it would be a weird and boring game show in truth very specific to sort of economic history maybe but <laughs> economic and markets history which we wouldn't want to watch but um, yeah and China is like you say the size of the property bubble is is amazing on whatever statistic you look at you know you've gone from having almost no private property sector a few decades ago to having a really really mm. giant one and with that have come all sorts of problems that now need to be worked out you know policymakers are doing things um, and you know there are some arguing that you know, although it, the individual measures may look a little bit like moving the deck chairs around, that when put together, the cumulative effects of these measures might be somewhat more substantial. I would probably tend more, you know, and there's, there's various views on the team on this. As you know, we're not of one mind it's on healthy everything. Debate, yeah. Healthy debate, I think. I mean, my personal view for what it's worth is that in order to sort of sustainably restore uh, you know, investor confidence in China. You probably need something in the order of the, you know, the troubled asset relief program you saw in the US subprime crisis, you know, kind of a recapitalization program, something big that allows people to sort of, you know, move on sustainably rather than the sort of piecemeal measures. But that may understate it a bit. And, it, you know, investors to a degree are being compensated. I mean, these are inexpensive valuations you're looking at. And certainly stock pickers that we employ, you know, on your behalf uh, to look at this area, they're sort of quite excited about some of the some of the names and some of the quality in there. And I was going to ask you that exact question, because there are some who are saying that 
it looks cheap, maybe ridiculously cheap yeah. as a long-term investor. So, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you going to put your neck on the line? What's your view there? Would you side with that or is it just too hard to well, say? Well, no, I'd, no I, I would, uh, to a degree, here we go, on the one hand and on the other. Um, no, I mean, I, I do think, you know, from a medium-term perspective, you can afford to sort of not worry too much about catching falling knives and sort of, you know, saying it's going to turn around tomorrow. You know, if you believe that, you know, China is a formidable, phenomenal economy, never seen before in many ways in some of its kind of characteristics. As you know, the Chinese authorities retain formidable powers of cohesion. You know, we've talked before about the inland high-speed rail network, no NIMBY problems there, you know, all of that kind of thing. Uh, and it's the same in sort of many industries and technologies, you know. So China does operate at the commanding heights now of many of the new incoming green technologies, you know, solar famously, you you know, electric vehicles and so on. So it's a huge economy for a start now. And it's one with lots of opportunities for stock pickers. And, and, and as a result, we have some exposure, some skin in the game. So we're not making a strict call and saying like, yes, we think it's going to be sort of, you know, 40% higher in the next month. But we are saying, look, it's worth investors having some option there. In a sensible fashion. Yeah, just as it is with Japan, you know. Because I guess there's so much chat in there about the Magnificent Seven. I know we talk about this nearly every week at the moment in the US, but... Surely some of those names in China could also potentially be set to benefit because, you know, there's some of that sort of exposure there as well, isn't there? Maybe. Yes, yes. I mean, I think, you know, the, the rule I think of investing is most of the time is that you want to be careful about. And again, as you and I talk about a lot, you know, as human beings, we're kind of uh, linear thinkers or tend to be sort of guilty of linear thinking. And so the longer a trend goes on, the more we think, right, well, that's going to happen for the next 100 years. I'm going to bet on that. And you start to see that in markets a bit more. Some of the valuations that you see in some parts of the global market, you know, suggest maybe, you know, increasingly unattainable, you know, uh, extrapolation. You want to be careful of that. But there's other parts, you know, like we're just talking about here, where repeated non-delivery, undelivery, Disappointment yeah. has had the opposite effect on valuation. So uh, the key is, I think, to have a sort of balanced and diversified view. I know that's not very exciting, but we can easily see scenarios where the Magnificent Seven are no longer so magnificent in the decades ahead. I mean, they are magnificent companies. Let's not, not get it wrong. But it would only take shifts in the kind of, you know, the antitrust or competitive backdrop or even you know incoming new technology to have unexpected effects. I mean, that is always the case with regards to the competitive backdrop, for you to be left wrong-footed on this stuff. So don't focus all your eggs in that basket. Think more broadly and just sort of always try and think beyond the linear trend and extrapolating it out because that's probably what some of the sort of less good investors in markets are doing to ascend. Got it. Really interesting. And we obviously touched on the property bubble. That's the main source of interest at the moment. But that's not the only thing in policymakers' intros at the moment. There are other factors to, to keep an eye on, I suspect. You're entirely right, Miles. And, I, and we can't do justice to them at a quick podcast here. I and mean, we have talked a lot about them in the past. And, you know, in a way, like sort of the, the more sort of epochal problems that China faces is that you can't urbanise twice. You know, they've had this kind of giant productivity surge and, you know, incredible levels of sort of poverty reduction, all these kind of things, as a result of essentially kind of the agricultural revolution of the early 1980s, they saw, you know, land return to the farmers from the state and freed from 
uh, you know, centralized decisions on what to grow and how to grow it. Agricultural productivity soared, as it does, and that freed up labor to go into the cities where you found that actually some of the liberalization around trading zones and sort of carefully managed kind of liberalization, let's say, that you found more productive jobs in the cities. And that created this incredible story to a, to a degree. And the story's not quite finished. There's more to do. There's reforms with regards to, you know, so there's something called the, uh, you know, the HOKO system, which is the household reg registration system. And still what you find is that, in a sense, there's an urban underclass who don't get the same rights, access to schools as sure. some of the sort of original urban dwellers. But the problem they now have is, you know, you need another productivity surge, basically. And what you're finding is the productivity of labor, workers and capital is now sort of on a downward trend a little bit. So what can you do? And, you know, historically, you know, and this may be a slightly, not more than a slightly, a Western centric view, but individual freedoms have been quite important in the sort of productivity process. And the point there is that it's not just the initial invention that matters, you know, say, generative AI or the compass or fire. Yeah, I won't go as far back as fire, but, you know, steam engines, this kind of thing. You know, it's actually what happens afterwards. So the innovation that happens afterwards. So a corporate sector and entrepreneurs incentivized in the right way and free to sort of have crazy ideas to a degree. And in the Western model or in the sort of developed world model, what you find is that those individual freedoms, you have to permit a degree of iconoclasm. You know, it's about the misfits and the weirdos to a certain extent, you know, like, <laughs> like me. Uh, I wasn't going to say. Yeah, yeah. But you have to sort of make room for these people in your economy to a degree. That's been previously the sort of the theory. Now, China's trying a different route. And will it work? It's uh, still open to Time debate. But yes, exactly. And you didn't mention your humble shipping container, so I'm impressed. Oh, I'm I, was, impressed. I wanted to. I wanted to. Okay, look, that's China covered off for now. So what about Japan? Because many, it seems, sort of predicted the end of that slump that's been going on for, what, the past few decades. They also look a little bit silly, in truth, it's, it's fair to say. There's a big graveyard of strategists career graveyard, I should say, of strategists who've tried to predict this one. Exactly. Unsuccessfully so far. So are you going to put your neck on the line again here and join that throng? <laughs> I'll do the same answer as China I a little bit. So. But I mean, I do think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of interesting points to make about this with regards to sort of, you know, you think about efficient market pricing this quite sort of boring idea that sort of markets are perfectly pricing everything. And in a way, evaluating the future perfectly in a sort of weighted probabilistic way. And, you know, one of the things that you want to bear in mind to that is exactly the point you just made is that many investors, there's a kind of pride and career risk that comes with this. If you're wrong, you know, actually, you start changing your priors, you don't go into it the next time fresh, thinking, oh, I'm going to give this another chance, you go into this thinking, I looked a real idiot last time and I lost a load of money. Can I do that? Have I got the career safety to I need do it to work for me. I need it to work for me. And so already your behavioral problems are getting in there a little bit. So there is something in there about sort of how markets can be sometimes quite slow to sort of fully price these things if there is a seismic shift because you know things have become so embedded, expectations have become so embedded. The other thing, and I'm sorry, forgive me, but history is important here. <laughs> I know. I know. Honestly, listeners, he's shaking his head. He is beaming. <laughs> but no, I mean, th this is interesting, I think, because, you know, the history of corporate Japan 
And Japan is famously you know, a very conservative society in many ways. You know, Japanese society has not evolved in the same way as American society. You know, that kind of creative destructive model where the carcasses of capitalism are just left open in the air and you just move on to the next bit. Japan has evolved in a way that's where stability is much more prized. And you can think about the corporate structures as indicative. So there was the Early on, pre-First World War, there was things called the Zaibatsu. And these are corporate groups like Mitsubishi, where it's whole kind of chains of corporate entities gathering together to sort of, you know, from the metal bashing to the bank to the insurance company to the shipmaker, all just trying to sort of allow each other to survive and exchanging mm. workers and so on. Now, after the Second World War, General MacArthur, his administration, the American imposed the Occupation Administration, you know, he turned around. And this is the same guy, remember, we talked about two weeks ago, who uh, advised President Truman to drop 25 atom bombs on uh, on Chinese cities during the Korean War, which thankfully uh, President Truman said no. But he basically said, have some good old fashioned American capitalism, you know, split them up and compete. Now, after that administration ended, this, these groups just quietly reassembled under a different name, Zaibatsu. And so there is a huge kind of there's something big to overcome, huge societal headwinds to overcome. But there's some interesting stuff going on. There's a little, if you squint, there's a little uptrend in profitability that we'll want to watch. And people are certainly getting very excited. You're seeing that on the share prices. You know, we haven't seen, I think they've hit 33-year highs. Mm. But I guess it's like cultural change. It doesn't typically happen overnight, does it? It's, it tends to be gradual, long-term. yes. Yes, it's the degree to which it changes. I guess there's some quite easy wins for uh, Japanese corporate, and the Tokyo Stock Exchange is very much trying to do this. So you're sort of they're trying to target some of the cross ownership, you know, that sort of Keirutsu in disguise kind of thing, which is generally. So they're trying to kind of break it up and make it compete a bit more and make it more shareholder friendly, you know, and punish companies that don't subscribe to this by delisting or threatening delisting. And, it, it, you know, you are seeing some things that are worth looking at. The old skeptics will be, you know, very wary. But again, I mean, it's worth having some skin in the game. And, you know, our fund selector in the area, Rob Mansell handles this, he's as you know. Good, he's very yeah. good. And he's very interesting on the subject. We'll get him back on, actually. But the people he talks to out there are starting to get quite interested. And these corporate governments, they're not, they're not totally new. You know, they've been going on for a few years. But people are just starting to really get a bit more excited about them. So, again, it's just worth having a look at, I think. I mean, if it did change, it'll be a huge opportunity. If Japan, I don't think you can expect return on equity, you know, the profitability to go to US levels. But even if it just went a little up bit, a bit yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you really are getting to exciting returns, I think. So just worth having a nibble. Very good. I've got one more question for you before Please. we go. I've just noticed Green Gile green watch strap was that on purpose for Carrow road it's sort of in line with the colors or is it that is I, I should have worn a yellow tie oh, yeah, as well slightly better. i know you're on the right lines I know. well the opening speaker at this event this morning stood up and said he was an ipswich fan i thought that was incredibly brave he almost was carried out but <laughs> luckily it was a sort of relatively civilized crowd but i made quite clear that i'd yeah i was Carrow road born and bred so yes it's a good point i noticed that okay sensible Good. Well, look, thanks as always, Will. We'll wrap it up there and uh, we will speak again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.